0: Welcome to Protest and Survive number 8, I'm your host Reed Dunley. 2.3 million people are in jail in the United States. Earlier this year, the Prison Policy Initiative put out a report called Mass Incarceration, The Whole Pie, and looking at the numbers in that report, it is painfully obvious that this system works against poor people and people of color. of the people that are incarcerated in the United States are black, even though black people only make up 13% of the American population. And the median felony bail bond in the United States is $10,000. If you have enough money to pay that bond, it's not really a big deal if you're arrested, you get out of jail, and then you'll go to trial. But if you're like the typical detained defendant in the United States, $10,000 is about eight months salary for that person. Which means before you're ever convicted of a crime, before you even ever go to trial to figure out if you're going to be convicted of a crime, you have to sit in jail and wait for that court date. In New York City, if you can't afford your bond, you're going to be sitting at Rikers Island where there are around 8,000 people every day waiting for trial. And while most New Yorkers do everything in their means to never have to step foot on Rikers Island, our guest this month, Tamara Santibanez, started volunteering there teaching tattooing. Tamara is an extremely talented and influential tattooer in Brooklyn. What I think makes her work really interesting is that she works in a style that was really developed in prisons. She does black and gray West Coast Chicanx style tattoos. That whole style was developed in California jails in the 70s, but she also does a really new twist on it where she incorporates the aesthetic of the punk scene that she came up in, incorporating leather and studs. When I look at Tamara's work, I can tell that it's paying homage to a very specific scene while also putting her own narrative and her own life into her work. Tamra does other types of visual art as well. She also does DIY publishing with a press called discipline press that she puts out. I think one of the things that makes Tamara's work notable is she's drawing on an influence that came out of prisons and she's actually going back into prisons and working with people who were in prisons and redefining that work and just like makes this really cyclical conversation in her art that can only really be made by her because it's so much informed by her personal narrative while respecting not only the work of her predecessors, but the work of the people who are in jail or just got out of jail or just got out of prison that she's working with one-on-one and making these you know, new connections, making this new art. Tamara hasn't only worked at Rikers, where she taught tattooing. She's also worked at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women, which is the only maximum security prison for women in the New York state. And she taught art with an organization called Rehabilitation Through the Arts. She does work with the Women's Prison Association, doing free cover-up tattoos for women who got tattoos while they were somewhere in the criminal justice system. She's worked with the Residence Center for Women in Tulsa, Oklahoma, doing re-entry work. And when I speak to Tamara about these issues, as you're about to hear, it is obvious that she really cares about these issues, that she's extremely thoughtful about these issues, and when she's going into these spaces, she's doing it in a context of all of her artwork, all of her... what she doesn't really like to describe as activist work, but there is this like holistic approach to her art to her social justice work that I think probably has a really positive impact on the people that she comes in touch with. While we were doing this interview, we kind of remembered that the first time me and Tamara met was in the pit at a choking victim concert, which is this, you know, over the top ska punk anarchist squatter band from New York City. We met at a free show in Tompkins Square Park when we were both freshmen in college. We were a mutual friend. I've come to find, through my involvement in the punk scene, that there's a lot of different ways that you can engage in that punk scene, and there's a lot of ways that you can go out into the rest of the world and sort of take the lessons that you've learned in that scene and reincorporate that into different scenarios and you just see this happen in so many different ways to actually meet somebody who's out there and taking the skills and the worldview that she's learned in that scene and actually just helping other people through that work is really refreshing. So this is episode number eight of Protest and Survive. We've been doing this now for about eight months. I am going to try to make more of a point to encourage folks to go on our website at anchor.fm slash protest dash and dash survive. And if you're able to donate some amount of money, to keep this project going so we can continue getting these stories out there it would mean a lot in making this project a little more sustainable than it is right now another way to do that is to be sure to rate subscribe and review wherever you're listening to this podcast and without further ado here is Tamara santibanez on protest and survive
1: My name is Tamara Santibanez, and I am a multidisciplinary artist. I have have a visual art practice. I also am a tattoo artist. I also run an independent publishing company called Discipline Press, and I also do some workshops. I teach a little bit. I do some writing, a little bit of a lot of of things.
0: I'm sure you kind of get this question a lot about, like, how... Those different practices like relate to each other and like where they overlap, kind of like in your head. But I guess also I wanted to maybe ask more specifically, like if there's any sort of like overarching feeling or emotion that you get when you engage in those specific practices and like how they might work different parts of your mind or your body or whatever.
1: That's a great question. And <laughs> I don't think I've ever been asked quite that question in that way. So that's nice to think about. I, I think that at the root of everything that I do is people and storytelling and history in some way or another. Um, I'm really interested in community building. I'm really interested in archival work in one way or another. I'm interested in overlapping identities. And I'm interested in the concept of the self and how we express our own concept of self and how we read that in other people. And so I think that all of those ideas are floating in and around and through all of the work that I do in one way or another.
0: Do you remember um, the first time that you made a piece of art?
1: It was definitely when I was really young. <laughs> I drew a lot as a kid. I made a lot of drawings. I remember, you know, even in kindergarten doing a lot of drawings of mermaids and Disney princesses and things like that. Um,
0: which was your favorite?
1: Uh, I think I liked the mermaids. I'm not sure why, but
0: was it the little mermaid or was it just mermaids?
1: mm, Probably the little mermaid. I don't know where else I was seeing mermaids at the time, but, uh, yeah, I always drew since I was a a little kid and the subject matter changed all the time, obviously as I got older, but
0: (laughs) now we talk in like, uh, crayons colored pencils pens
1: definitely crayons although i remember when i was really young my dad i had to have been younger than eight for sure um because that was when my dad wasn't in the house anymore but i for some reason he bought me oil paints like oil paints and canvases and so i remember painting with oil paints as a really young kid and i don't know why my parent thought that that was a good medium to introduce me to. I don't know when you're five or six, you're probably still eating paint and making a crazy mess. So, but I do remember that happening. I wonder if those paintings are still floating around somewhere. They're probably better than what I make now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Hopefully someone kept them or maybe like, Someone that you don't even know, like, ended up with them from, like, a Goodwill sale or something like that, you know?
1: I love that idea. I hope they're hanging in a motel somewhere.
0: Can you tell me about your childhood? You grew up in the South somewhere.
1: Yeah, and... yeah. I grew up in Georgia. Yeah. But I grew up in Athens, Georgia. So people either know exactly where that is and know a little bit about it or have no concept of what kind of place that is. And a lot of people assume if you grew up in in Georgia that it was very rural or that it was Atlanta Uh, But Athens is very suburban. It's a college town, kind of classic, small indie rock college town. But that's what Athens is most known for is its indie rock legacy from the 90s. And I was growing up there in the 90s. So that was kind of around. It's not like I was going to R.E.M. shows or anything, but um, there was a lot of all ages venues and, you know, people playing in bands and art that you could see and so I feel pretty lucky to have grown up somewhere that had that kind of stuff going on. And it's not like I was called so culturally isolated or in the middle of nowhere. Um, it definitely had its downsides. There's a lot of things I did not like about growing up there. But I left when I was really young. I left. Um, I had just turned 17 and I moved to Savannah to go to school for a year. And then I moved to New York when I was 18.
0: Cool. And you did have the band American Cheeseburger.
1: Yes. Wow. Wow, I forgot about that band.
0: I have their records still, I think. Yeah. Speaking of like
1: yeah.
0: outdated the technology that's sitting around your house, um, what was your family like and what was your community like when you were a kid?
1: Well, I'm not, I'm going to try not to overshare like crazy because I've been in this deep therapy journey right now. So I'm going to try not to go too crazy. But
0: so we could just talk about your family. And oh,
1: home. we could talk about it for the next. <laughs> season of your of your podcast. But um so my my parents, my dad is American, he's a white, a white guy and my mom is Mexican. Her family's Mexican and Guatemalan. Um she moved here from Mexico when she married my dad. And so What part of Mexico? Um from Guadalajara. So my dad's family's from Oregon. I was actually born in Eugene, Oregon, nice. and, which is which is funny cuz it's another sort of like college town with kind of radical uh, undercurrents there too. I mean, I, as far as I know, Eugene is sort of considered the home of like green anarchism and that kind of like, um, that kind of deep ecology school of
0: thought. Yeah, they're supposed to have a great, um, state fair also. Yeah, I believe that.
1: Again. I went back there one time for a family reunion and. I snuck out of my hotel room and went and met up with two of my crust punk friends who happened to be living there and they had dumpstered these five gallon drums of really quality almond butter it's it seems like it's a dumpster diving paradise they had all this really expensive organic fair trade chocolate bars and almond butter and all these things that were so good to eat that they had gotten out of the trash and they took me to some burning man party where people were fire spinning and I stayed out all night and then I was walking back to the hotel to try to meet my family before they all woke up. And my uncle totally busted me having <laughs> not slept. But <laughs> I tried to lie and say I was going to find a coffee. And he's like, sure. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, I was born in, in in Oregon. And then my family moved to Georgia when I was three. So I was really young. And my family, you know, we had no real familial roots. And mostly it was because my dad was a college professor. So we kind of, we ended up there. And then he ended up moving a couple other places that had Colleges there and then um yeah so i lived in athens from when i was three and
0: and when then were you just with your mom for most of your childhood your, your dad moved somewhere else
1: yeah my parents split when i was really young so then grew up with my mom i have a younger brother and sister and uh it was very much a you know kind of parentified older child you know offspring of an immigrant kind of situation where I was like the baby mom and took care of my brother and sister. My mom was working all the time. What did she do? She works as an interpreter, um, a Spanish interpreter at a hospital. And she's had a couple other jobs. You know, she usually works two jobs. Um, But yeah, she's been doing the hospital thing for a long time. Does she like it? I think she does like it. I think it seems to be really significant work. To me, I think there's probably, like, in any institution, a lot of bureaucracy that she has to deal with. Um, but I think her work is probably more important now than it was even initially because the Latinx population in Georgia has grown really tremendously since I lived there. Um, but a lot of the people she, she was working with at the, when I was young were... Um, low income and undocumented families and she'd worked a lot in midwifery interpreting so a lot of babies being born and Cute. being the person kind of helping that process along
0: yeah i had listened to an interview with you on a podcast that i really like called uh life harvester yeah Radio, uh, oh, I, think I, I love colin so much i love colin so much too and i love your guys's interview and one thing i mean there are a lot of things about that interview that i remember but one of which was i remember you saying that you often kind of have like a thing that you're thinking about all week and kind of like talking about that one thing with the people that you're giving tattoos with or the friends that you might run in on the street. But there's kind of this like one thing that you're kind of like going through your head and working it out with the people that you come in contact with. Yes. What's in your head this week?
1: Oh, okay, That's a great question because there's definitely two concrete ones. Um, The first is Thinking about what it means to be successful. So I was talking with a friend of mine who is an artist and she had just had this solo exhibition and I made a point to text her and say, congratulations, I hope it's going well. And then to text her afterwards to ask how it had been. And she told me, honestly, I don't think I want to do another one. I don't like having solo exhibitions. I would rather be part of a group. I don't like the focus being on me. And I think I'm just not going to do it anymore. And I really loved that because it's so antithetical to how we as artists are trained to think about the trajectory of our careers, that we should be working towards having all these massive shows that are only of our work and to center ourselves. And that's that was something I had just been talking about with somebody else is thinking about what feels good and, and true and sustainable to us as individuals rather than defaulting to this commercially established route of what it means to be a successful artist, like having visibility, having an audience, be having a constant output of creative work, um, working with brands, doing press. Because to tell you the truth, a lot of those things actually don't feel good to me. And maybe they have at different points in my life. Um, because of course, it's it's validation and that feels nice. Um, and it can help... Make your career feel more stable or sustainable in the long term, which is definitely a positive. But some of those things don't feel good to me at the moment. And I'm working to really mentally divest from someone else's idea of what a next step should be for me and to think about what feels good and right for my own career.
0: Is there any kind of like specific things that do feel like success for you?
1: For me, I've been trying to scale back. A little bit. I've been trying to invest in, in per- interpersonal relationships more. I've been trying to give myself space to think about my artistic concepts more. I've been trying to write more, see my ideas through a little bit more. All these uh, mechanisms of being creative that are unseen. You know, it's not very consumable through Instagram to be writing something down. It's not very... Uh, it's not very flashy to have an in-depth conversation with one person, right? um, but those are the things that feel the best to me. Um, or even spending time alone.
0: And what's um thought number two? <laughs>
1: okay, thought of number the week. Yeah, thought number two <laughs> of the week is that I've been marinating a lot on the role of an artist in as it relates to politics. Um, you, I think every artist is expected to be an activist in in this day and age, un, in the current climate, in this political atmosphere. Uh, but um, but I think that you know I don't I don't really like to de- describe myself as an activist. I, I There's a lot of issues that I take with that self assigning that label. So, <laughs> I saw some meme. I can't remember who posted this. It was something about like. How being an artist is just making a useless object to help people talk to you about yourself, <laughs> <laughs> which is not wrong, but I think that you know, as an ob- as artists, we're sort of tasked with the the job of creating these objects or these images or these spaces or these performances that neatly distill larger ideas and concepts and to build these sort of bridges between an ideology or a concept or a question and um, an audience's perception and their ability to read it, which is a a big challenge, right? Um, To do that with style and to do that with nuance and to leave enough space for the audience to engage with it genuinely and not just tell them how to feel or tell them what they're looking at. And it's something I think about quite a bit, and especially now because I've been – so much of my work deals with identity and deals with the ways that we communicate with each other. And it deals with the ways that we move through the world. And that does have a lot to do with violence that people experience or violence that we inflict on other people. Um, And I never want to, I never want to trade in absolutes. You know, I can tell somebody how I feel, but a lot of times that's asking questions of myself as well. And so I think, w- and and in grappling with how to approach the prison system as an artist, which is what I've been doing more recently, I've realized that my job is not to speak to statistics or to speak to material support, even though those things are crucial, right? Um, and I do engage in those things as well. But that the role of my art is more to ask people to to question these these much larger concepts that have to do with how the prison system came to be, and I'm, I'm talking around it because I don't because there is no no real direct way to say it, but um, but you know for for example if I so I'm I'm an artist who. You know, has taught inside correctional facilities, who's worked with artists and commissioned work from artists inside um, prisons, who has done work on the reentry side of things. So engaged with that system in a number of different ways. But I myself have never been incarcerated. And I think that's really important to acknowledge as a limitation of mine. But I think that if the role of an artist is to be the sort of bridge builder, then what I would like people to think about is not necessarily the statistics about how many pri- people are in prison annually or how much money is spent on private prisons annually. Um, but to think more about how on an interpersonal level, we contribute to the culture of prisons to think about the notions that we carry with us that we've absorbed about who is and isn't a criminal about the types of people who are in prisons to think about Our own notions of punishment, to think about notions of retribution or rehabilitation, um, because I think we all participate in those systems on a really microcosmic scale every day. You know, if you get upset at somebody and you want them to feel bad because they've hurt you, I think that that in a small way contributes to the carceral state. (laughs) Right. So I think that so much of working towards prison abolition is as the
0: sirens blare. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right, I know too, too, too perfect. Right, the cops are everywhere; they're inside us. <laughs> um, but this is what I mean, right? Like speaking of cops, I see so I, you know, being a part of subcultural communities for as long as I have, I see so much impulse towards self-policing that is inherent in the way that we form community, and that's something I really want to challenge people to move away from or to even take notice of in themselves. And and these are all very, very murky concepts, right? It's like thinking about ideas of good versus evil, right? Good people versus bad people. People doing the right thing versus people doing the wrong thing. Um, I recently did a project in Tulsa with um, Atomic Culture at the Tulsa Artist Fellowship where I was doing uh, free cover-up tattoos for women who had been previously incarcerated and recording some oral history from them about their tattoos and how they got them and what being tattooed means to them, which is something that I'm really interested in. And uh, I had to do a, a presentation at the end to the fellowship about, about it. And s- someone was asking me, I don't know, the emotional or the the mental process of working with people who I know have committed violent acts, um, which there's, a, there's a lot of answers to that question. First of all, you know, I think there's quite a lot of space between the state's narrative of what a charge is that's brought against somebody and the gray areas of the situation that actually happened you know i think i i no way advocate violence or want to excuse violence that's being done but i think we have to acknowledge that we live in a system that's constantly perpetuating violence against us to begin with and you know when you think about, I mean, the the extremes that people grasp at when they ask those questions are things like murder, a murder charge, for example. So then you think, well, what if, um, okay, so what if somebody murdered someone in self-defense? You know, what if it was a woman murdering her abuser? What if it was, um, you know, what if you knew that the person who's in prison currently on a murder charge didn't commit that crime? There's, there's so many holes around the black and white way that people want to look at someone being charged with a violent crime.
0: And I feel like even in the black and white examples of like, but what about the context of like growing up with no resources and in a violent society and like put in positions where you have to use violence to get by, you know what I mean? Like even at the black and white, it's like what led to that happening is like so complicated already. Right. And
1: once you start unpacking it, you see that it's not so simple and, I think what people are asking in those questions at times is people want to, you know, we really want to feel a a separation between us and other people who we perceive as doing harm because we want to believe that people who could do harm are far away from us or that we could never be those people. And that's simply not true. And I think that that's one of the biggest concepts that I try to grapple with. In some of the work that I make is the fact that we we all have the capacity to heal and to harm. and and that's something that I've seen demonstrated to me so clearly through working in correctional facilities is that some of the people who had who had committed really difficult crimes um, or, or really harmful acts were people who demonstrated so much kindness and so much tenderness and generosity to me. And that people are capable of both things. They're capable of both ends of the spectrum and everything in between the spectrum. And, and in a lot of ways, that's given me so much hope. <laughs> so much hope because I do believe that people are... No one is inherently bad and no one is only bad. I don't know. This was a really long roundabout answer to your question. But the answer is essentially my thought number two Is as artists, how do we grapple with these really abstract questions that are applicable to really concrete day to day problems or situations?
0: When did you first like think about wanting to work in prisons?
1: I guess, I guess to really rewind, I've always been a punk and an anarchist since I was really young. That was sort of my introduction to politics. So I grew up from a really young age with ideas of direct action and ideas of people facing legal consequences, um, for the things that they were doing in the name of justice or bettering the world being really present. Prison abolitionist politics were always around, right? Um, the idea that the justice system and the prison system were really oppressive and something to be dismantled was around me in the anarchist ether like atmosphere for a long time um but it wasn't something that felt so immediate to me necessarily and what got me more directly involved was through tattooing essentially um starting to do more black and gray tattooing from from pretty early on when i started tattooing that was the style that i gravitated towards and the more that i learned about it and learned about the origins of it i was really attracted to it because of its connection to chicanex west coast history um and mexican american culture but i was also uh understanding the enormous role that incarceration played in that and the ways that tattooing was really criminalized um for its perceived gang associations And that type of artwork was also criminalized for those associations. And so understanding the ways that people would learn how to tattoo in prison and then get out and have these professional careers, um, it seemed really, it seemed really inextricable to me from that style of tattooing. And so I was slow, I was doing some things here and there, like donating artwork for legal support, um, fundraisers and things like that. And, um, At the time, there was this guy, Jorge Cornell, who got locked up in North Carolina. I think he's in Virginia now, but some anarchist friends of mine were close with him. Um, And he and I are still in touch through mail and through the phone. Sometimes he's doing kind of a long sentence um, on racketeering charges. But he was a really active person in his community. He ran for city council, and he was really vocal about police brutality in his community and trying to work to pass foster gang peace treaties in his community. And then he and his community were hit with these RICO charges and federal surveillance and a lot of really intense repression. So that was sort of running through a lot of the artwork that I was doing was this connective thread and then I ended up very by chance getting asked to come and teach a drawing class at Rikers Island. I think that the woman who was the arts instructor at the time or the arts volunteer coordinator at the time was coming from maybe a sort of unconventional background and wanted to get some new and different programming inside so she had reached out to all these different tattoo shops asking if anyone wanted to do tattoo related programming because it was for the what they call youth offenders, which is 18 to 21 year olds. And she was like, I know the guys really love tattoos. I think that they would love to have a tattoo class, obviously not teaching how to tattoo, but teaching the art of tattooing and the drawing, the drawing style. So I started doing that and I did that for about two years. And from there getting more involved, um, I did a stationary project for discipline press of work from artists who were incarcerated And I taught at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. Um, More recently, I've been doing more stuff on more on the reentry side because I'm really interested in the intersection of tattooing and criminality, like in air quotes, you know, um, the ideas of tattooing being perceived as criminal or tattooing being stigmatized differently on people who have done time versus people who haven't.
0: Do you remember the first time that you went to Rikers and what it was like?
1: I do. I remember going in and, you know, again, returning briefly to this idea of like the artist and what your role is, right? I think there's also this idea of bearing witness um, because so many people who I know have not had to go to Rikers Island. I haven't had to go to Rikers Island to serve time there, but I've worked there. And so People are always asking what it's like. And Rikers, I think, is also this specter in New York's imagination for very legitimate reasons. It's a very toxic site. It's um, really notoriously violent. There's a lot of uh, human rights abuses that happen there. There's no air conditioning in the summertime. It's it's pretty it's pretty wretched. And there's so much activism going on right now to close Rikers Island, which is something that they've been trying to do for a long time. Um which is pretty, I mean, I know that the city has committed to closing it, but it seems to be stalled from what I understand. And, um, but anyway, so, so what I mean to say is that going into Rikers, even as somebody who grew up like really anarchist, I was really struck by how much, despite holding those political views, I had internalized stereotypes around what Rikers Island would be like. And so going in and meeting my students, I mean, Rikers felt like a high school to me. And I don't know if that says more about the state of the school to prison pipeline (laughs) or about Rikers specifically or about my high school specifically, but I was hit with a sort of nostalgic wave of like, "Whoa, this really feels like what my high school felt like to be in. And that was really striking. But It also was really, there's this really, um, sort of disconcerting, contradictory energy there. I don't know. It can feel almost deserted and feel, have sort of a mundane energy to it. This sort of like mind numbing, like boredom. There's like nothing stimulating there whatsoever. But then of course there is like terrible violence that happens there, um, and so this that sort of like dichotomy of like extreme boredom with also like a lot of harm that happens there is really strange um because there is just like so much systematic bullshit like a lot of waiting sitting around like having to be escorted just like time kind of slips away from you being turned away something being a lockdown so you're just sitting and waiting with nothing to do um people just killing time, you know, literally. And so um, so that was really striking to me. Over the times that I went there, I noticed a lot about how quickly I was acclimating to the things that were there and sort of stopped noticing things after a while. Um, so one of my coworkers went and taught with me for a while and he was noticing all these things when he started going. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess that is crazy. Or yeah, I guess that is really strange that that is that way. And I had Stop noticing it really quickly. I mean, of course, the culture is really deeply invested in maintaining stereotypes about who is incarcerated, because that makes it easier for those people to disappear behind prison walls and not be supported and not be thought about and not be fought for and not be given resources once they get out. But the truth is that it's all kinds of people, you know, people's aunts, my friends loved ones people's moms like your younger brother and that is something that the the prison system is deeply invested in erasing from people when they go in and I think that that's why it's so important to maintain that even if you're somebody who doesn't personally know someone who's currently incarcerated you definitely know somebody who has been incarcerated and they might not be talking to you about it because of the deep stigma that exists. But this statistically, so many people have spent some time in some kind of correctional facility. And it's really important to acknowledge that that doesn't define a person that doesn't tell you anything about their character or who they are today. Um, And I've heard a lot of people articulate that, um, you know what sent them to what sent them to prison was a really one of the worst parts of their life or a part that they don't want to revisit and that and how painful it is to be judged for the rest of your life by the worst moment of your life. Sometimes something you did when you were a teenager in your early twenties. And if you're talking to somebody who's in their forties, that's a really that's a really impossible standard to be held to
0: Was it um tattoo drawing at bedford hills also
1: no it wasn't so that was with um it was through rehabilitation through the arts who is an organization that does um programming i think in in five different facilities around new york and they do a lot of they're very well known for their theater programming they do theater dance visual arts and so this was just a visual arts class that i was co-teaching with another educator from new york
0: What sort of stuff were people making there?
1: (laughs) We were doing, you know, we did sketching, like figure figure drawing, um, some watercolor, some pastels too. So a little more materials too, because at Rikers, we could only really have colored pencils, printer paper, um, golf pencils.
0: Who did you meet through this work? Anyone that you kind of, I don't know, stood out to you in terms of, Having a really, you know, interesting personality, or someone that you stayed in touch with, or someone that you were inspired by.
1: There's one. There's one woman who I met at who, who was a student in the class at Bedford Hills who has a really interesting story. And so her name is Judy, and she, I could tell she was a much older woman. Woman, and I could tell that she had been locked up for a really long time. She kept alluding to the fact that she had been there forever, basically. And she was such a cool student, so enthusiastic about art, and she also trained dogs. They have a dog training program there, so she would bring the dog to class sometimes. And then I found out um, from a mutual from, – from another educator there that Judy was part of the Weather Underground, and that Judy had been involved in an armor – she was, I think, the driver for an armored truck robbery – where someone ended up being killed, and she she was really notorious because at the time she represented herself in court and she basically said that she didn't acknowledge the um, legitimacy of the this fascist imperialist court and that the I don't know that everyone there was like a bunch of fascist dogs or something like that and that she didn't regret what she did because revolutionary violence is sometimes necessary. But really fascinating to me, this woman, however many years later, I don't know, 30, 40 years later, maybe more than that, actually. And I would love to ask her questions about that time of her life and see what she has to say about it now. But she's an incredible woman. She's done so much work on the inside. And she started the dog training program, actually.
0: Amazing. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I've I've come across different former members of the Weather Underground in different places in my life throughout the years, and I always find that whole thing to be super interesting. When I was, like, in high school, I was like, oh, yeah, that's what that's what's up, you know what I mean? But, like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> not really seeing something like that ever exist in, like, our time politically that I can, like, think of in America.
1: Yeah, um, I guess I wonder... I remember watching that documentary and really wondering what the Panthers thought about the weather underground and thinking about, it made me really wonder what um, the black and brown liberation movements of the time thought about these sort of radical white allies. Totally. I would like to know that I think there's value in, I mean, I absolutely think there's value in white people absorbing risk. But I don't know how much of that blowback negatively affected the other movements.
0: Right. Because I think, like, at least theoretically, that was a big point of it. Like, white people have to do something, right? But if that means that that's an excuse for the FBI to go and, like, you know, start killing Black Panthers because it's, like, a heightened state of violence or something
1: right who ultimately absorbs the negative consequences of that and the heightened violence but i do think but i do think it's an important question to be asking today as well you know i think we see that continuing to happen quite a lot where issues that are considered to be i don't know immigrant issues for example a lot of Im- people are like where's all the where's all our white neighbors You know, why don't they show up and be at the front of the line when cops show up and start arresting people? There's less consequences for those people when they get arrested.
0: And when and when they do, it's usually a pretty beautiful thing. You know, like there was um, it was around like Nashville a couple months ago Mm -hmm. and they were and and ICE was trying to had like pulled over, was trying to get um, like a father and son out of their van and like all of the neighbors kind of like who were I saw that. white, yeah. but also different backgrounds kind of like came over and were like, don't get out of the van. Like you don't have to listen to them. They're going to detain you, blah, blah, blah. And ended up like actually like forming like a, like a human chain around the van and to their front door so they could like get from the van back into their house after like a three hour standoff with yeah. ice or something like that. Yeah, I did
1: see that. That was really amazing. I think, I think it is beautiful to see and it is really heartening to see and I think that is what true allyship looks like. And I think that's, I mean, I've heard, I, I wish I could remember who said this specifically, but something about how you can't, it's not allyship if you aren't giving up some power in some way or if you aren't taking some sort of risk.
0: Totally. Or at the very least, like using that power for... The benefit of other people
1: right something. and then and that i think is is goes back to what i feel about visibility as an artist i think there's this idea that we should all strive to have this platform this is like a word that gets thrown around so often now this platform right platform for your work platform for your ideas a platform for your thoughts and you know, you asked me earlier what's feeling good to me right now, and honestly, work that people don't know about is what feels good to me right now. and i I'm much more comfortable doing that behind the scenes type of material support than I am. like I you know, when I was going to Rikers, i didn't I didn't talk about that for a long time. You know, I've never really posted about it online. I've talked about it in places where I could talk about it a little more in depth because I think it deserves to be spoken about with with depth and not be used as a way to signal, I don't even know, something about myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you can do that don't center yourself. You know, you can, de- on, often declining an opportunity and passing it to somebody else is better work than taking the opportunity yourself and That, I think, is something really challenging right now in the age of social media because there's no outward reward for that, which is something people just have to get comfortable with. At the end of the day, if you're using your voice to talk about an issue, you're still the person being rewarded. You're still the person who's gaining something in that way. Um, And that's not to say that there aren't consequences for being vocal. People experience those consequences differently, but people who have relative comfort and privilege posting about something on Instagram and that being their work for the day, there's so many other ways to do that that maybe you can be sharing, but would be more effective and be more immediate. Um, that's a practice I've tried to adopt for myself. Um And it's not, it's not hard. It's not hard. You know, it's not hard. I think I consider myself really fortunate to have such a great community here in New York because I do know people who are doing amazing work. And if somebody reaches out to interview me, I can say like, hey, I'm actually not doing interviews right now, but you know who is doing something similar that I think would be great is this person. And people more often than not will take you up on that. So it's a really effective way to um, pass the mic as they say. (laughs) rather than be like let me tell you all about how this issue is an issue
0: and i assume that you know this may have been related to what you had said earlier but you had made a point of saying that you don't um or you have issues with describing yourself as an activist is it kind of like in this vein or is there other things or why what are those what are the issues for you
1: When it comes to myself, I think that descriptor as activist implies that it's something that you are rather than it's something that you do because activism is ultimately work. It's not an inherent identity. Um, If I'm just going to work and going home, I'm not an activist. It doesn't, I don't think it matters how much I share on social media. I don't think that's the same thing as showing up and actually putting in material work um, or actually donating money or actually, again, putting yourself at some kind of risk or trying to give up something that you have. Um, and this that's not, I don't know. I don't mean to criticize the term activist wholesale. I think it describes something that exists. You know, it's a shorthand for a lot of really in-depth work that people do. But I prefer to talk about social justice and talk about community organizing and to talk about maybe community activism as this collective practice that we're all engaging in that I'm supporting rather than activist singular as an identity that I'm taking on.
0: Do you have any sort of like, you know, personal or community goals For your work and art?
1: Well, right now, what I'm working on, this is sort of this big project that I just started taking on, so it still needs a lot of work, but I'm trying to develop a trauma-aware philosophy for tattooing. But I'm trying to develop this philosophy towards a community care approach and towards this sort of like radical notion of tattooing as liberation work.
0: And we're going to leave Tamara's answer there because on our next episode of Protest and Survive, we're going to have Tamara back on to explore her new trauma-aware philosophy for tattooing. The way that we do this episode is going to be slightly new territory for the pod in terms of how we tell the story, so please check back for that one soon. In the meantime, you can find Tamara's artwork, publishing, and tattoos at TamaraSantibanez.com. That's T-A-M-A-R-A-S-A-N-T-I-B-A-N-E-Z.com. And if you like what Tamara had to say in this episode, you should consider supporting her work by buying a piece of art or getting a tattoo from her. Thanks to Asa Merritt for your help with this episode, and thank you, the listener, for tuning in to Protest and Survive. 500 channels of a damn simulation, help me to reset my life and raise my expectations. Look in the free and memories of And when you discontent, you change the TV station
1: And when you hit, your like no quality of the